Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. President Trump heads to protest at Kenosha, despite pleas from the mayor and the governor to stay away. Samsung charged, the phone maker's boss indicted over a controversial 2015 merger, and Zoom takes off. Profits jump more than 3,000% as it cashes in on work from home. It is Tuesday. Let's make a move. All right, welcome to First Move. So good to be with you. I'm Zane Asher, filling in with my colleague, Julia Chatterley, let's begin with a look at the global markets for you. U.S. stocks are set for a mostly higher open as we kick off a new month. It's September here uh, on Wall Street. The newly revamped Dow is under pressure again after three quarters of a percent drop yesterday. But tech stocks are set to extend the strong gains we saw in August. It was the best August on Wall Street since the mid-80s, with the Dow and the S&P 500 rising 7%. The Nasdaq beat them all, though, rallying almost 10%, thanks in part to staff players like Apple and Tesla. Both companies rallied yesterday after their stock splits. Both are up again pre-market, but Tesla has paired its gains significantly after announcing that it will sell about $5 billion more in stock. Zoom shares, let's take a look here, meantime are set to rise almost 40% after posting a better than expected 3,000% spike in second quarter profits. Uh, stocks are trading mixed in Europe. Uh, UK stocks under pressure as the pound rallies against the dollar. New numbers also show Eurozone unemployment rising to almost 8% in July. In Asia, let's turn to Asia now, uh, Chinese stocks advanced after a private manufacturing survey showed factory activity expanding at its fastest rate since 2011. Last month, uh, US factory numbers for August will be released in the next hour. Let's get right to our drivers now. President Trump heads to Kenosha in Wisconsin in the wake of protests there, despite objections from the state's governor and the city's mayor as well. They're concerned today's visit could trigger even more violence, as Shimon Prokupes reports. This morning, President Trump is moving forward with plans to travel to Kenosha, Wisconsin, despite calls from local officials to reconsider his trip. I'm disappointed that he is coming. The president is always welcome, but at this time, it's just the wrong time. Right now is a time for us to heal and to be able to look inward and deal with the issues that we have to deal with. The White House says Trump will survey damage and speak with law enforcement officials, dismissing criticism that his appearance could cause even more tension in the city. It could also increase enthusiasm and it could increase love and respect for our country. Unrest in some American cities like Kenosha and Portland are now a major talking point for Trump's re-election campaign. Joe Biden slammed the president's rhetoric from a campaign stop in Pittsburgh. He may believe mouthing the words law and order makes him strong, but his failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. No justice! No peace! 
This as protests continue, demanding justice for Jacob Blake, who was shot by police over a week ago. President Trump will not visit Blake's family because he says they want a lawyer present. I'm not going to play politics. This is my son's life we're talking about. And while protests in Kenosha became deadly last week, the president refused to condemn the 17-year-old gunman suspected of killing two people. You saw the same tape as I saw. He was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like. And he fell, and then they very violently attacked him. But I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed, but it's under investigation. Biden denouncing all violence from both the right and the left, saying Trump is only causing more division instead of uniting a hurting nation. The violence we're seeing in Donald Trump's America. These are not images of some imagined Joe Biden America in the future. These are images of Donald Trump's America today. Shimon Prokupes reporting there. The president's visit comes as coronavirus cases in the United States exceed 6 million. Joe Johns joins me live now from Washington. So, John, the president has been warned by local officials not to go to Kenosha. He's going anyway. What good does he think could actually come out of his visit, especially given that he's talking about people like Carl Rittenhouse as though they've acted in self-defense when that's clearly, according to people who are there, not the case? I think you can say this is an appeal to the president's base. He knows he has a conservative pres uh, base and they are interested very much in law and order. The president harking back to the strategy used by Richard Nixon when he was an unpopular president and had a swirl of events going around his office. Meantime, Richard Nixon pushed the notion of law and order and successfully won a second term, though he eventually resigned. So the president is pushing this message of law and order for his followers. As far as Kyle Rittenhouse goes, it's pretty clear that the president, by encouraging the followers who do things like Kyle Rittenhouse, he's essentially sending a message that he's not condemning it. He was asked to condemn it in his briefing just yesterday. The president explained that in his view, Kyle Rittenhouse, by shooting two people and killing them, wounding a third, was in fact acting in self-defense. Uh, all of this not only serves to help the president with his base, it, there's also an issue of distraction. As you mentioned at the top, the president has coronavirus here in the United States, as worse as, as it's ever been, in fact. So many people dead, so many people infected. And this is an attempt, of course, to turn the page, move on to something different. It's a tactic the president and this administration have used again and again, and certainly we'll see more of in the run-up to the November election. Same right, so this is, just, this is just about sort of changing the subject. But, you know, just in terms of his visit to Kenosha, the president continuously complains about division, violence, unrest happening in various parts of the country. He talks about himself as being the law and order president. But when you see the division happening in various cities, how does he explain the fact that all of it is happening under his watch? He doesn't, quite frankly. And that's the big problem, that we're in a, Donald Trump's United States. This is not Joe Biden's United States, as he suggests. And when the president goes to Kenosha today, he is not trying to bring the two sides together. He's going to visit with law enforcement. He's going to see 
property that's been damaged by the riots there and he's going to see an operations center and have essentially a town meeting with law enforcement. He is not meeting with the family of uh, the young man who was shot seven times there, paralyzed, and uh, is now fighting for his life, the family says. So the president is reaching to one side of this equation and not both, and clearly pushing the division rather than trying to heal it. Yeah, Jacob Blake's father clearly stating that he's not going to be used as a political prop. This is just about his son's life and nothing else matters, which is understandable. John Jones, live for us there at the White House. Thank you so much. Now to South Korea, Samsung Air Lee Jae-yong indicted over a controversial merger in 2015. Prosecutors accused him of engaging in the stock price manipulation and other defenses, other offenses as well, as he sought to tighten his control over Samsung. Selena Wang joins us live now. So, Selena, this is the outcome of a 21-month probe. What more do we know about this allegation? Zane, Samsung's de facto leader, who is also known as JY Lee, has been embroiled in legal scandals for years. This time, Lee, as well as 10 other executives, are being charged on indictments related to this 2015 merger between Samsung CNT and Chell Industries. Allegedly, this merger allowed JY Lee to consolidate his power to cement the succession of the company after his father, who has been hospitalized since 2014. Now, the lead prosecutor said, in the process of this merger, Lee and those executives engaged in spreading false information and stock manipulation. They say that those executives and Lee unilaterally decided on the timing of this merger so that it would benefit Chael Industries. That's important because JY Lee was a majority shareholder of Chael Industries. Samsung has denied these allegations, saying that the investigation was done, quote, with the aim of prosecuting JY Lee from the beginning rather than seeking the actual truth according to evidence. Now, J.Y. Lee had already spent about a year in jail. Zane, he was only released in 2018. That was on charges of bribery related to South Korea's former president. That case is still ongoing. And Selena, you mentioned that he's been jailed before. Obviously, this is not the first time he's faced criminal indictment. What's next for him in this? What's next for J.Y. Lee? Well, Zane, this indictment sets up paves a way for him to face trial on these allegations. That could drag on for years, however. And in the meantime, this does cast yet another shadow over Samsung's leadership. This conglomerate is a powerful symbol of South Korea's rise as a technology powerhouse, but it's also a symbol for the problems that arise when a small group of families control so much of South Korea's economy. Samsung accounts for about a fifth of South Korea's exports for years has been one of the world's largest sellers of smartphones, TVs, and chips. So it not only plays a key role in South Korea's economy, but also in telling this broader national story. And in recent months, JY Lee has tried to improve Samsung's public image. In fact, in May, he even issued a public apology. He admitted that Samsung has, quote, failed at times to meet society's expectations because we did not strictly uphold the law and ethical standards. He's pledged to do better, including ending the dynastic succession. He said he won't be giving his role to his children down the line. Selena Wang, live for us there. Thank you so much. Facebook is threatening to ban news sharing by its Australian users if the country passes a new rule about content on the site. Australian regulators are proposing that Facebook should pay for news shared 
on its platform. Brian Stelter joins us live now. So, Brian, this still needs to be approved by Australian Parliament. But, but why do they think this move in terms of making Facebook pay? Why do they think this is fair and necessary just in terms of leveling the playing field? Right. This proposal in Australia could be a model all around the world. That's why Google and Facebook are taking it so seriously. And now Facebook is taking a dramatic step to fight against it. Uh, The foundation of this is about what has happened to news publishers, uh, big ones like CNN and then small newspapers around the world uh, due to the Internet age. Because Facebook and Google control the online ad marketplace, Uh, it has hurt many smaller publishers. It's also hurt bigger companies like ones owned by Rupert Murdoch. It has been Murdoch's News Corporation that's been driving for this kind of law in Australia that would reset the playing field and would force Facebook and Google to pay more to the news publishers. Uh, Basically, there'd be a panel of arbitrators that would decide how much revenue should be going from the social media giants over to the news industry. Uh, Facebook and Google are fighting against this, and Facebook most dramatically overnight, uh, Facebook saying that if this becomes law in Australia, it will disable the ability for people in Australia to post links to news. That's how serious this fight is. So then if Facebook ends up blocking news on their site, I mean, couldn't that backfire by preventing these smaller publishers that are in danger, preventing them from reaching a much wider audience, which is of course what they want? Right. They say they don't want to do this. Campbell Brown, Facebook executive, former CNN anchor, says this was not a step Facebook wants to take. They say regretfully they would have to do this because they don't agree with the proposal in Australia. We have not heard what Google's stance on this would be. I think Facebook is coming out in front here and saying they would take this extreme measure in order to uh, to fight back against this proposal. Um, you know, bottom line here is that Facebook says it doesn't need news as much as news needs Facebook. You know, it says that most things shared on Facebook are posts from friends and family, not links to news sites. However, the news industry is very, very serious about trying to get more money out of Facebook and Google. This has been a battle for years, and I think we're seeing it explode now in Australia. Yeah, Facebook, Google, those tech sites, you know, of course, continue to dominate in terms of uh, ad revenue. Uh, Right, that's the life for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. These are the stories making headlines around the world. Hong Kong is rolling out a free coronavirus testing program for all residents today, uh, hoping to contain its latest outbreak. Hundreds of thousands of people have signed up, but many others are staying away because of China's direct involvement. It sent dozens of doctors to help at testing sites. And pro-democracy activists fear China could use the program as cover to collect data on people, including their DNA. Officials deny that and say no samples will be taken out of the city. But as Will Ripley reports, deep skepticism remains. The work never stops at this Hong Kong lab. COVID-19 tests are coming in around the clock. Do-it-yourself testing kits take just a few minutes. My team and I got results in 24 hours, all negative. How often do you get tested? Twice a week. Twice a week? Yes. So you don't have to wear a mask. No, well, I'm usually the safest person <laughs> in the room. Prenetic CEO Danny Young has teams working 24-7. Uh, we've actually had to hire over 200 people uh, just alone in the last four weeks to be able to uh, meet this demand. Demand is so high, the office is getting crowded. Each of those clear plastic bags is somebody's COVID-19 test. They basically spit into a cup. They are processing 15,000 of these every day just at this lab. They actually have a capacity for up to 20,000. And there is the demand because people want to know if there are hidden cases out there in the community. To find those hidden cases, Hong Kong wants to test the entire population. 
more than 7 million people. The city set up more than 100 testing labs. 3,000 medical staff are prepared to handle half a million tests per day, assisted by a team of experts from mainland China. Raising concern among some residents, the tests could be used to collect DNA. With how the experience of that uh, red capital companies provide the service in Xinjiang re-education camp and with the DNA collection for Uyghurs or etc., it's time to realize how Beijing and Hong Kong government uh, pretend and also facilitate the interference in Hong Kong using the excuse of COVID-19. A lot of people will ask the question whether this very important uh, private information will be transmitted or being handed to other institutions, um, laboratory, or even going back to, you know, any places or institutions in China. Hong Kong's leader, Carrie Lam, says the claims are purely political. They just need that one thing to smear the central government and undermine the relationship between Hong Kong and the Chinese government. Hong Kong is one of the few places outside of mainland China to offer free testing for everyone. Unlike China, it's voluntary. If privacy fears keep too many people away, those hidden cases may stay just that, putting the city at risk for an even deadlier outbreak. Will Ripley, CNN, Hong Kong. An Australian journalist working for Chinese state media is being held in China without charge. Officials for Australia's consulate say business anchor Sheng Li is in good condition, but they do not have answers as to why she's being detained. Sheng Li hosted a business show on China's English language broadcaster CGTN. Children in several sites across China returned to school Tuesday, including Wuhan, the original epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. It is a phased return. depending on age and grade level. Chinese authorities say safety measures are in place. The city officials say they have plans to return to online teaching if new outbreaks emerge. And French President Manny Macron is in Beirut today for a second visit since a devastating blast ripped through the city's main port last month. His two-day trip is meant to follow up on reconstruction efforts and to help press for political and economic reforms. All right, still to come here on First Move, Zoom reaps the benefits of working from home with a revenue surge. And the mothers who are fighting to get back into their jobs, the struggle of working women in this pandemic. Welcome back to First Move, coming to you live from New York. U.S. futures are weakening a bit as we count down to the start of September trading. I can't believe it's September. Uh, But tech is still on track for a suddenly higher open. Tech stocks were big winners in August. But companies that will benefit when a COVID vaccine finally arrives saw strong gains last month as well. Cruise lines, airlines and resorts continue to bounce from the sizable losses uh, and suffered. They suffered during the spring. Stocks in the news today include Walmart. It has officially unveiled its new Walmart Plus online service intended to go head to head with Amazon Prime. The service is $21 a year, less than Amazon Prime in the U.S., but it lacks some of Amazon's key features like music and movie streaming. Boston Consulting Group, one of the largest management consulting firms in the world, are announcing a major climate commitment. BCG says it plans to deliver net zero, net zero climate impact by the year 2030. Joining us live now is CEO Rich Lesser. Uh, Rich, so just walk us through how you plan to achieve these, uh, these really good climate impact goals. Yeah, we've got um, three big elements to it. 
the first, of course, starts with our own emissions and to, to improve what we're doing. Uh, that means taking down our scope one and two emissions, our direct emissions by 90% by 2025. Uh, it means taking down our business travel uh, related expenses per FDE uh, by 30% uh, over the same time period with an expectation that we can go further. So we'll make a big dent in our own emissions profile uh, relative to the size of the firm. And then the next thing that, that we do is we wanna neutralize the rest. Uh, that's different than avoiding emissions. That's actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere for every ton that we put in. And we'll do that uh, using a combination of nature-based and engineered solutions and spending much more per ton. Uh, we're, we're anticipating that the, the, the cost could rise to about $80 per ton versus the market price today is about 3 to $6 per ton by 2030 to be able to truly neutralize what we emit and to be able to really invest in projects that represent leading technologies. Um, and then the final commitment is to help the world. BCG has so much capability. So we've committed uh, 400 million over the decade of BCG team time of, of our own investments in uh, research to be at the cutting edge in collaborations with groups like the WEF, the work we've been doing with COP26, other organizations to really do what we can to bring our capabilities to help the rest of the world improve as well, which we desperately need. So, so these are all noble goals, but what is it about what's happening in the world right now? Uh, in the United States, obviously, people are certainly hard done by their suffering because of coronavirus. The economy is in a difficult situation as well. What is it about all of that that has really forced you to reaffirm your commitment to the environment? Well, I think you've, you've laid exactly the right backdrop. Interestingly, carbon emissions have dropped this year by the largest amount since World War II, but exactly for the wrong reasons. The, the economic uh, impact it's had on so many people is enormous. This isn't the way we want to get there. The risk is with governments and individuals under so much strain that we could lose sight of this critical long-term challenge, which is to fundamentally change the carbon footprint of humanity in the world. And we felt like now was the right time to send a signal that, that, of course, we need to focus on the near term and all the challenges, but we also need to reaffirm long-term commitments to fundamentally change trajectory. And, and we believe whether it's green stimulus programs and some of the government support packages, whether it's the commitments that individual companies make, that now is a really important time to reaffirm support for this really existential challenge the world is facing. I'm um, just pivoting slightly to uh, the coronavirus and, and the economy. Um, you know, naturally, the business impact of the coronavirus has been pretty significant. As an economy, there are six million cases. We're just looking at a chart there showing six million cases right now in the U.S. But as an economy, um, as a country, how do you think the U.S. should balance, you know, keeping people safe with just making sure that people, especially those uh, living below the poverty line, don't need to necessarily completely sacrifice their livelihoods as well? It's so important to get the balance right here that, that, you know, the real challenge is to be able to have a safe economy that can keep people healthy and a vibrant economy to not have to do a complete shutdown the way we did uh, six months ago. And, and in order to do that, uh, we see two broad strategies, well, three. One is to keep providing the economic support and hopefully Congress and the administration will be able to agree on a package uh, when, when they return in this month. But second, to take two broad th thrusts on the health side. One is 
to do general things around wearing masks and keeping social distancing, particularly in indoor gatherings, to keep people safe generally. And then the second is to protect the vulnerable, the people that are either over 65 or are facing serious health issues already. Those are the people that are most at risk, 10 times more likely to end up in the hospital or to, or to die uh, from COVID-19. And whether it's providing them free masks helping them with additional support if they are living at home, whether it's mental health or food support, uh, taking on other actions to protect the vulnerable, in addition to the broader society uh, responsibilities we have, will reduce hospitalizations, reduce fatality, and allow a broader economic opening. All right, so protecting the vulnerable is key, those who have underlying conditions, those who are slightly older. Um, and as you, you, know, we- and just one point, as you said, the particularly vulnerable um, are po- people in poverty, people of, of color. Course. They are particularly vulnerable for the kinds of things and the actions we need to take. Of course. Um, we are in the middle of what some people have coined as a she-session, meaning that this pandemic has unfortunately disproportionately affected both women and minorities, partly because women are more employed in, in service sector jobs, in hospitality jobs, which you know has suffered a lot during this pandemic. How do you think the government, I mean, obviously, you know, we can talk about the stimulus bill as, as a separate issue, but how do you think the government should really make sure that this recovery is that much more inclusive for both women and people of color? Well, I, I, it's, a, it's a really important point. And I think that the first thing the government can do is make sure that we recognize that this is hitting different groups differently. And some of the underlying support packages to help people go through very difficult times, particularly people on the front lines, frontline workers, people in service industry jobs and other places are going to be hit uh, harder. They're at higher risk. And, uh, and many of those industries are some of the ones that are still suffering in parts of retail, in, in restaurants, in travel and tourism. Um, and I think finding ways to continue to provide some underlying support there is going to be important. We also need to invest in helping people build the skills they need for tomorrow. There have been some really innovative programs announced. The governor of Rhode Island announced uh, one recently, Governor Raimondo. We need to not just get people back to their current jobs. We need to recognize in a digital technology-oriented economy, we need to help reskill people. And using COVID, when many people are displaced anyway, as a chance to build skills that will help them succeed in the future, that's a really key element of this too. Rich Lester, CEO of BCG, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll have the market open coming up after this short break. Right, 31 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this first day of September. As expected, we've got a mixed start to the session with blue chips underperforming the broader market. Tech stocks, however, are kicking off the month with solid gains. The Nasdaq is now up more than 31% year to date and approaching milestone 12,000 level. Tech is getting a boost from blockbuster results from stay-at-home stock Zoom. The video conferencing company is reporting a more than 3,000% rise in fiscal second quarter profits and a more than 300% spike in revenues. Tesla shares are under pressure in early trading after announcing that it plans to sell an additional $5 billion in stock. The biggest black-led bank in America was created last week in a deal that saw City First Bank of D.C. merge with L.A.-based Broadway Federal Bank. The new lender has over a billion dollars worth of assets under management. It aims to finance affordable housing and small businesses as well. Joining me now is Brian Argret, 
President and Chief Executive Officer of City First Bank of DC. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. So what will this merger mean for low-income banking, do you think? Yes, well, uh, first of all, thank you, Zane. It's a pleasure to be on, on the show this morning. Uh, this merger of equals is, is extremely important because we're bringing together two uh, strong, longstanding uh, financial institutions in their respective markets, as you said, in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, really to uh, build, a, build a stronger organization, uh, an organization that can provide increased levels of uh, capital uh, to uh, uh, low, uh, low and moderate income communities and communities of color. You know, we're seeing, Brian, protests happening across the country. You know, Black Lives Matter has become a real issue uh, in this country, and the spotlight is really shining on it at this moment in time. How important are Black-owned banks and Black financial empowerment in the Black Lives Matter era? I think it's absolutely critical. And again, I think uh, this combination and uh, uh, is, is critical in both demonstrating uh, our ability to come together, build something stronger uh, in the collective, in, in, in a unification uh, that is both symbolic and that also delivers uh, to uh, our, our underlying communities. It's critical in a time like this. Economic justice is important. So what have you done in terms of how have you invested in sort of equitable economic development and, you know, what should be done overall in this country to really level the playing field financially for black people? Yes. Well, let me start with a, a statistic that I think might be very interesting, uh, uh, Zane. Uh, if you look at pre-pandemic uh, levels uh, and you look at my hometown of Washington, D.C., where City First Bank is located, there's a wealth gap that is uh, dramatic. Uh, literally, you have 81 times uh, the wealth in uh, white households as you have in African-American households. And so let me translate that. That's uh, 284,000 in net, uh, net worth, if you will, the balance sheet, if you will, of a family for a uh, white family. And for a black family, that number is actually $3,500. And so what that means is, and for a Latino family, that number, Latino or Hispanic family, that number is $13,000. So the, the, the difference, um, uh, the, the, the dramatic challenge that presents is really a resilience for that family entering into a pandemic, pandemic or even in normal times. And in fact, also the difficulty of funding the balance sheet of a business. Uh, so really uh, inadequate or, or um, a, a large differential in wealth uh, translates into a reduced uh, ability for opportunity. But to your question, what can be done? community development financial institutions and black-led uh, banks, black-led businesses are critical in closing that gap and providing wealth and capital uh, so that uh, we can, in the collective, uplift our community. And in terms of, you know, uh, at the sort of government level, just in terms of, you know, passing another stimulus bill, I mean, how should resources be allocated within black communities to make sure, I mean, you know, things have gotten far worse in this country during this pandemic in terms of the differences between black income and white income and which communities are suffering the most job losses. So what could be done on a, on a governmental level, um, especially with stimulus, to make sure that black people in this recovery are not left behind? It, 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 you're right on point, and, and, and really government has to play a critical and central role 
in really addressing what is a systemic issue. Uh, I'll, I'll point out, for example, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, which is PPP, which uh, was part of the government stimulus effort to uplift small business, unfortunately did not reach the African-American community in the manner in, for which it was intended by its own writing. So 95% of African-American uh, businesses were unable to access the, this stimulus money. Uh, now, I'll contrast that, and for a reason, at City First Bank of D.C., just for example, as a community development financial institution, over 40% of the uh, PPP money that we were able to put into the community was specifically uh, directed towards uh, African-American business owners as well as African-American-led nonprofits. So my short point is it's very important to have community-based institutions that are resilient, uh, that have a, uh, relationships within the community, uh, that have a longstanding commitment to the community, uh, and that have the resources uh, to invest in that community. Yes, CDFIs have become that much more necessary, especially given the pandemic. Brian Argret, President and CEO of City First Bank of DC, thank you so much. All right. Coming up here after the break, the economic consequences of the coronavirus pandemic on women specifically will explain one mom, one mom's battle to get back to work. When schools closed down at the pan, as the pandemic took hold, many women were forced to quit their jobs to stay at home with their children. Now they're finding it harder to return to work as opportunities dry up. Issa Suarez has more. Like many others, Alpana Chakravarti's career hit the wrong note in 2020, jolted by lockdown and the financial whiplash of COVID-19. We were working from home for just under a month um, and then furloughed to end of July. And then, yes, of course, got very scared. But furlough came and went. And now the single mother of two has been made redundant with no income and bills that just keep piling up. My rental bill is just going up and up. It doesn't matter what I'm trying to do, everywhere else is going up. So I'm fighting a losing battle. She's not fighting it alone. According to the International Labour Organization, women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, with almost 510 million of all employed women worldwide working in the four most affected sectors. Now, there's a real risk of a two-tier return to work. So you're going to see... Um, large numbers of women not able to return to work because the sectors that they're working in are, are not really financially viable. Let's break the stereotypical vibe. For Alpana, this has meant six months of single parenting, cooking, cleaning, homeschooling and entertaining. Happy? You should be. Ultimately, less time focusing on getting her career and her finances back on track. I'm very worried. I'm still trying. Um, more agencies I talk to, the more worried I get. How emotional has this whole experience been for you? Have you had moments of self-doubt? I've been wavering. I've been wavering. I've been trying to put on a brave face. I always have done that for my kids. However, that's probably not teaching them true life. Um, and it's okay to see mum crumble at times. The damage from COVID-19 will be felt by future generations of women. With the IMF warning, gender gaps are widening despite 30 years of progress. I think it's actually made things worse. 
So it's not just that it's shone a light on those pre-existing inequalities, it's actually exacerbated them. So, you know, prior to um, the pandemic, women in the UK were more likely to be low paid. Um, there was a significant gender pay gap. Mm. They were more likely to be in insecure employment on zero hours contracts and so on. And they were more likely to take on the majority of unpaid work. What the pandemic has done is increase that. A disheartening message for Alpena, her 11-year-old daughter and all women who hope to finally chip away at that impenetrable glass ceiling. Isa Suarez, CNN, Berkshire, South East England. The issue of childcare is just one of many problems facing women returning to work. The Institute for Women's Policy Research says women have been disproportionately affected by job losses since the pandemic started. It says the worst affected sectors are... <clears throat> excuse me, leisure and hospitality, education and health services, retail and professional and business services. Nicole Mason is the Institute's president. She joins us live now. So, Nicole, for women who have been forced to sort of stay at home and and, and quit their jobs, take care of their children during this pandemic, whose careers have essentially stalled, how do they begin at this point to re-enter the workforce, do you think? So for many women, the road ahead is going to be really hard and difficult because many women are, while they're trying to re-enter the workforce or in many instances, find a new career, they're also juggling caretaking demands. Uh, last week or over the last few weeks, schools across the country or across the United States have opened virtually. And so many parents, mothers who uh, bore most of the caretaking responsibilities at home are also having to homeschool their children. So for many women, re-entering the workforce or being able to sustain employment will be difficult. So if you're a single mother or you're a a breadwinner parent, a a mother as well, um, you know, or you're living below the poverty line as a mother, what is needed just in terms of government policies to make that transition back into the workforce that much easier? That's a really good question. So for women who are able and can enter the re-enter the workforce, childcare is critically important or other supports that will allow them to not only re-enter the workforce, but be able to sustain employment. So um, right now we don't have a really great plan in terms of providing childcare supports. There are some legislation and bills to get money to families who are in need of childcare support, but it's stalled right now in Congress. Um, and so, so that's on the that's so we have that on the other hand. But for other parents who just going back and reentering the workforce is not an option because they're single, they're single mothers and they have to uh, take care of their children. Being able to provide for them, um, you again, ex- the extended unemployment insurance or the economic stimulus payments are really integral to keeping many families afloat. But as you know, uh, Congress hasn't been able to reach a deal, leaving many families hanging in the balance. And what will this mean for pay equity? Does it worsen the gap between men and women just in terms of what people are being paid as a result of the fact that women have been out of the workforce? Some women have been out of the workforce now for that much longer. And what will it mean for minority women especially? Well, so as we know, um, women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and women of color specifically who... um, 
you know, the pay gap for for all women is 82 cents on the dollar, but for black women and Latino women, it's about 64 cents on the dollar. And that really translates into cash in their pockets and cash to be able to take care of their families. And so those families are suffering disproportionately during the pandemic. And what we see is the deepening of um, existing inequalities, both income and wealth, and that it's going to take a long time for particularly black women and women of color to be able to recover. Um, and right now, unless we do something, there will be an uneven recovery. So do you think there has been a true sort of deep understanding among men in this country um, about what this pandemic has really meant for women, especially women of color? No, actually, I think our, you know, men, women, Congress, um, we just were not prepared for this moment. And so we're still all trying to figure out what this means in this moment. But what we know is in 2008, for example, it was a manufacturing and production crisis and uh, recession. And today it's mainly impacting women. So the solutions and strategies that we employed in 2008 may not work now because they're different challenges, unique challenges that women face that men do not or did not in two th- in the, during the 2008 recession. Childcare is one of those things. Pay gap and pay inequality is another issue. Um, but also the fact that many of the jobs that have been lost are in lower waste jobs or jobs without benefits, which also means that if women get sick or need to take care of their families, they don't have paid paid leave or paid um, support so that they can do that and off-ramp um, without fear of you know losing their job or being becoming more economically vulnerable. Right, yeah, so, so childcare, um, childcare policies, helping women is important, as you mentioned, paid sick leave as well, and a whole host of other policies that are um, hopefully a stimulus bill in the future will address. Nicole Mason, president of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, thank you so much, appreciate you joining us. All right, you're watching First Move, we'll have much more after the break. All right, welcome back to First Move. We've got uh, a mostly higher start to September trading on Wall Street. The Dow is under a bit of pressure, uh, but tech is hitting fresh records. The Dow is basically flat right now. That said, shares of Tesla are weighted, are weighing on the Nasdaq after announcing plans for a $5 billion stock sale that's offsetting blockbuster results from video conferencing giant Zoom. Paul and Monica joins us live now uh, with more. So, Paul, Tesla is basically selling up to $5 billion worth of stock. Walk us through what the proceeds are going to be used for, do you think? Yeah, the company didn't really give too many details in its regulatory filings, Zane, saying that they would probably use some of the money to pay down debt and for other general corporate purposes. So I don't think this is necessarily Elon Musk building a war chest to go on an acquisition spree or anything like that. But still, Tesla's stock has been on fire. We expect that the company could be added to the S&P 500 sometime, you know, maybe in the next few months because it's finally consistently profitable. So I think this is just a reflection of why not take advantage of the strong investor demand that's continued even after the stock split and raise some more money. Uh, let's talk about Zoom in terms of their sales because they were just stellar. They, they didn't even predict it. Nobody predicted how good it was going to be for them. Um, profit increased about 3000 percent or so, I believe, just I mean, how how long do you think this company can continue to dominate in this way? Is it up until there's a vaccine and then, you know, we might see their 
sort of their, their sales go the other direction or, or how long beyond that? Yeah, I don't think, Zane, that their sales will suddenly go in the other direction if we get a vaccine. Because remember, Zoom was a rapidly growing company even before COVID-19. Of course, we've had so many trends accelerate and have more people working from home. So you obviously have just an explosion in demand for video conferencing now that I don't think is going to go away if people finally start to slowly creep back to going back to the office. I think the bigger question is Zoom still faces challenges potentially down the road from much larger tech companies like Cisco and Microsoft that obviously have their own web conferencing, video conferencing tools as well. But Zoom has weathered that competition so far. And when you look at how well Zoom has done, its market cap now makes it a mega tech giant as well. So you have to put Zoom in the same sentence with the Microsofts and Cisco's of the world, even though they're still smaller than those two giants. Zoom is by no means some plucky upstart anymore. They are one of tech's biggest companies. Not at all. But I will say that, you know, a year, maybe a year and a half ago, there are not that many people um, who had even heard of Zoom. How did they turn themselves into the go-to service for video conferencing during this pandemic? How did they become a household name all of a sudden? Yeah, it's amazing. I think it has become one of those companies that's now a verb. You know, I'm going to Zoom you. And I think that right now what they've done really well is they've had little features like the filters that many users like, and they've done a good job with their app of, you know, getting average people online too. I mean, I know a lot of people who use Zoom chats for just friendly discussions with big groups of people instead of doing, say, FaceTime or another one-on-one video chat. And it's not just big corporations that are using it. Schools, there have been some privacy concerns about Zoom bombing, but you're starting to see a lot of educational institutions use Zoom as well and not just the uh, you know other platforms from Microsoft and Cisco. Yeah, one of the majorly positive economic stories from this pandemic, Zoom. Thank you so much, Paul LaMonica. That's it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Thank you so much for watching. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.